Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. Last week, we began examining Shakespeare's so-called problem comedy, measure for measure. That is a term that was applied to three of Shakespeare's comedies in his middle period, the period otherwise characterized by the great tragedies starting with Hamlet. But although the term problem play originated as a label for the realistic dramas of the late 19th and early 20th century by such dramatists as Ibsen in particular, the term problem comedy fits measure for measure pretty well. And the problem in a word is sex. This is a play about morality, about the nature of human nature, but the focus is on sex and sexual morality, which immediately makes it different from the earlier, more traditional comedies where the focus is on love and romance culminating in marriage, and yes, Sexuality, the erotic, is an undertone in much of the earlier comedy, but it remains under the surface. Here, it is the foreground, it is the subject, it is the problem. And that leads us to wonder about it. The plot that is the vehicle for this discussion about sexuality is that the Duke of Vienna, the man who rules Vienna, announces that he must, sorry, leave on a sudden trip and is leaving in charge in his absence the young, untried Angelo, who is inexperienced but has a big reputation for being upright, strict, and zealous for the law. The Duke could have appointed and passed over the more experienced and older Aeschylus, and Aeschylus is going to be a co-judge in the cases involved here, but it is Angelo who is actually in charge. And Angelo proves his zealous uprightness by immediately beginning to enforce a law that has lain dormant on the books for either 19 or 14 years, the text is inconsistent, deeming the death penalty for anyone caught having sex outside marriage. And as such over strict laws usually do, they catch the innocent and the relatively guilty elude the law, and that's exactly what happens in the first act. Poor young Claudio has been apprehended because his secret fiancée, Giulietta, has been discovered to be pregnant. They are engaged, they are legally bound to each other, but they have not gone through the ceremony yet. And like how many couples then and now, they 
didn't wait for the wedding. They jumped the gun, and poor Julieta is showing and pregnant, and Claudio is arrested and has been led off to prison in Act One due to be executed for having sex not with a prostitute, because there are prostitutes in this play, in the other plot, the subplot, but with a woman that he loves, that he planned to marry, is legally engaged to, nevertheless, you are going to die, and Angelo is going to enforce this irrational law. Northrop Fry, the literary critic, in his work on Shakespearean comedy, talks about the frequent presence as part of the obstructing forces in comedy of some kind of irrational law. And we definitely have that here. One wonders how this law ever got on the books. It has not been enforced in nearly a generation, but there it is, lying ready to hand for some zealot like Angelo to dust off and start trying to enforce. In other comedies, an irrational law can take the form most commonly, perhaps, in traditional comedy, of something like the patriarchal will of a possessive parent, as in Midsummer Night's Dream, where the father says, you are going to marry this guy and not this guy, simply because I'm your father and this is my will. Or it can be, in an almost punning sense, in The Merchant of Venice, it is the father's will in a double sense. Portia's father has died, but his will, what he wills to happen, is set out in a will, a legal document, that anyone who wants to marry his daughter has to go undergo the ordeal of the three caskets, and so forth. So an obstructing law, and here we have a kind of ultimately obstructing law, and Angelo is going to enforce it whether or not we think it's reasonable. And we wonder, before we go to the plot of Act Two, we had pretty much covered Act One, which lays out this plot scenario. We might wonder briefly just to set it up in the back of our minds to keep thinking about What's with the obsession about sex? The play's larger concern is with human nature in general and how corrupt human nature is by nature, how inherently corrupt it is, and the implications of human corruption for morality and the law. But why should that come to focus? on sexual morality. After all, as Claudio says in Act 3, of the seven, meaning the seven deadly sins, it is the least. And that is true in Dante's Divine Comedy, where lust is punished in the first and least circle of hell. And we will be finding out, surprisingly enough, that Shakespeare has in mind Dante's Divine Comedy in Act Three of this play. But Claudio is right. Of the seven, it is the least. And this obsession with sexual purity, 
sexual sin is defined as basically having sex or wanting sex as opposed to being pure and resisting that temptation. And this is not unique to this play where the earlier comedies may mute it in favor of love and romance. Nevertheless, we are on the other side of a play in which this is a foreground and that is Hamlet. Hamlet is only a couple of years before Measure for Measure, and Hamlet is obsessed with sexuality, with corrupt and even disgusting sexuality, telling Ophelia, get thee to a nunnery, because all women are corrupt, and that's the only way that we can make sure that you will control yourself, etc., etc. So this play is not actually unique in terms of its obsession with sexuality and so-called sexual sin, but it is rare to have this in a comedy, after all. We may, as we keep this in the back of our minds and process it in terms of the evidence as the play unfolds scene after scene, we may keep in mind to ask eventually about our own attitudes to this. We might superficially say, well, oh, we're modern. We're, we're beyond this kind of puritanical obsession, right? Well, not in the United States right at the moment. Let me do what I do in class and try to frame whatever work we're dealing with in terms of its possible connections to and relevance to and mirroring of contemporary situations. The United States has just gotten done repealing Roe versus Wade and the people who repealed it have pretty much promised to keep going and come after things like contraception to ban birth control in addition to abortions. And yet, the same people, the conservatives, without making a political editorial, but pointing out what is simply factually in the news, we have a president who is the leader of the conservative forces who has been convicted of sexual harassment and has not only failed to deny it, but actually boasts about it. We have Mike Johnson, presently the head of the House of Representatives, who is such an extreme conservative Christian that he too is focused on sexual morality. It has just been in the news in the last few weeks that he made his daughter go through a public ceremony a kind of mimicking of a wedding that is a purity ceremony, guaranteeing that she will remain pure. And he has made his son take a vow that the both of them will put devices on their phones that will alert whenever anyone goes to a pornography site. We're talking an obsession with sex, with sexual desire and the control of sexual desire. This is about as topical a play as it could possibly be right now. It was not very popular in its own time, but respect for it has been growing. And 
we are going to see where that goes. In the opening of Act Two, Scene One, the two leaders of society who are acting as the judges of the legal cases, Angelo and presently his second, Aeschylus, are discussing Claudio's case. And we come in in the middle of the conversation, but it is clear that Aeschylus has already been urging Angelo to lighten up a little bit. And Angelo is utterly refusing. His first lines in Act Two are, we must not make a scarecrow of the law, setting it up. And finally, if we don't enforce it, the birds will get wise to it and the scarecrow won't scare anybody anymore. Aeschylus urges not just mercy, but perhaps a little bit of common sense and knowledge of human nature. He says, aye, but yet let us be keen and rather cut a little than fall and bruise to death. Alas, this gentleman, meaning Claudio, whom I would save, had a most noble father. And anyway, let your honor know, whom I believe to be most straight in virtue, that in the working of your own affections, had time cohered with place, or place with wishing, or that the resolute acting of your blood could have attained the effect of your own purpose, whether you had not sometime in your life erred in this point which now you censure him and pull the law upon you. What if at some point in your life you actually had been put in a position of temptation? He is trying tactfully to imply that Perhaps some people do not fall because they have never been tempted, and they've never been tempted because they have never been put in the position of having the opportunity to fall. Maybe we should think about the frailty of human nature, and especially in terms of our own possible frailty. Angelo replies with utter ice. "'Tis one thing to be tempted, Aeschylus, another thing to fall." It's one thing to be tempted, but if you fall, that's your own fault, and you must own it. And Aeschylus simply has to give up. He meets a wall of ice and ends the conversation with a couplet well, heaven forgive him, meaning Claudio, and forgive us all. Some rise by sin, and some by virtue fall. Suddenly, still in the first scene, the other plot, there are always two plots in Shakespearean comedy, an upper and a lower, so to speak, the lower being lower class characters who have a comic satiric subplot that usually runs parallel to the main plot but intersects it in various ways. And so here, in that way, measure for measure, follows Shakespeare's traditional 
comic structuring, in comes part of the comic subplot in the form of Elbow, who is the constable, a lower-level officer of the law, bearing with him Pompey, whom we have already met. Pompey is a pimp, disguised as a tapster, in other words, as a barkeeper, and he works for Mistress Overdone, whom we've also met in the previous act, who is the madam of the whorehouse disguised as a pub. And nevertheless, in comes Elbow, dragging uh, Pompey with him under arrest, introducing himself and getting a laugh. I am the poor Duke's constable, and my name is Elbow. I do lean upon justice, sir. Ha. Uh, <laughs> which, however, his very name brings in the type of comedy which is far from unique here. The lower class characters Shakespeare usually portrays as ignorant and innocent at the same time, and a very characteristic foible that they have is to mangle language. They're not very educated, sometimes perhaps they're not very smart, and therefore they misuse language in a comic way. Elbow constantly uses the wrong word other than what he intends. It's like a bad freshman composition paper where people are trying to use vocabula vocabulary that they are not really master of and end up using the wrong word. Often Elbow uses exactly the opposite word from what he wants. As he says here, I do bring in here two notorious benefactors, and he means malefactors. And we have a tapster, but he serves a bad woman. Her house was plucked down in the suburbs, and now she professes a hot house, which I think is a very ill house, too. Another enforcement of the law that we learned in Act One that Angelo had put into effect is to rip down all the whorehouses in the suburbs, but they have relocated into the city and pretend to be a pub, a bar. And we learn, sort of, what happened in order to bring Elbow into the court here, arresting Pompey. My wife, sir, whom I detest before heaven and your honor, and suddenly Iskola says, how thy wife? I detest, he means I protest something about my wife. He didn't get to finish his sentence. Uh, whom I thank heaven is an honest woman, Elbow says. Well, dost thou detest her, therefore? I say, sir, and I will detest myself also. Uh, if this be not a bawd's house, it is pity of her life, for it is a naughty house. How dost thou know that, constable? Well, his wife went into the naughty house because it turns out we will never know what really went on here, but let us extract what we can or what Aeschylus manages to get out of these people. 
Um, she came in pregnant, and apparently the old joke about pregnant women wanting weird foods, having craving. When I was young, it was pickles and ice cream was the old joke. Uh, apparently that's very old. She came in because she's pregnant with a great desire for stewed prunes, which was a common thing. And stewed prunes were common in whorehouses. In fact, the nickname for them was the stews. Uh, that was a term for a house of ill repute at the time. So she came in after stewed prunes and apparently something or other was said to her. Well, what was it? Well, Elbow is utterly incapable of being articulate enough to get out what exactly, what kind of insult was given to her when she walked into Pompey's place. Aeschylus tries to ferret this out. Now, sir, come on. What was done to Elbow's wife once more? And Pompey says, once, sir. There was nothing done to her once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it goes on and on, and they get nowhere from all of this. It goes on for about two pages, and finally, Angelo gets up and leaves. This is nonsense. I leave this to you. He dumps it on Aeschylus, which tells you something. He leaves fairly early. Uh, this will last out a night in Russia, he says. I'll take my leave and leave you to the hearing of the cause, hoping you will find good cause to whip them all. We have to read even more carefully than usual in this play for subtext because we don't get descriptions of how we are supposed to think or the inferences about character and motive that we never do in Shakespeare. We, and in drama in general, because drama is speech and we don't have a narrator as we do in fiction to describe people's inner thoughts and workings, but even more so than usual in drama in terms of Shakespeare. But the clues are there. The fact that Angelo is supposed to be so upright, but when you get to, this is really a lot like teaching. Sometimes you end up in situations where you just, you know you're kind of wasting your time, but it needs to be done. It needs to be dealt with, whatever it may happen to be. And that's part of the job. Angelo's too good for that. So he dumps it off onto Aeschylus, who is willing to do what needs to be done and takes this on and tries to do his best with it without getting all in a huff about it. And uh, there's nothing that Aeschylus can really do because there's no actual, even coherent accusation in a concrete way, let alone proof of it. Something might have been said to Elbow's wife. 
So finally Aeschylus says, and you can hear the <laughs> exasperated good humor in this fellow's voice. Aeschylus is a very likable character. He's the kind of judge you would want to have in your case. And he says, dry, with some dry humor, truly officer speaking to elbow, because he, meaning Pompey, hath some offenses in him that thou wouldst discover if thou couldst, let him continue in his course till thou knowest what they are. <laughs> That's fine for elbow. Mary, sir, I thank your worship for it. You see, wicked varlet, now what's come upon thee? Thou art to continue now. Thou varlet, thou art to continue. That'll show you. Yeah. Aeschylus does know, however, that Pompey is bad news, and he is not about to let Pompey just walk out of here without at least a warning. There's nothing that he can be prosecuted for, but Aeschylus knows what Pompey is and what Pompey does, and he turns to Pompey and says, Your mistress's name? Mistress Overdone. Hath she had any more than one husband? Nine, sir overdone by the last. More Shakespearean jokes. Okay, then there is another character, a young fellow who works for them in the pub, Master Froth. In other words, he's the bartender. And uh, he warns Master Froth, you know, this is bad. This is a bad job. Get out of trouble here. Then he turns to Pompey and says, it would be better for you, sir, if you reformed your ways. And Pompey says, well, truly, sir, I am a poor fellow that would live. Guy's got to live, man. And I live by being a pimp, is what he's implying. How would you live, Pompey? By being a bod, by being a pimp? What do you think of the trade, Pompey? Is it a lawful trade? If the law would allow it, sir. But the law will not allow it, Pompey. Nor it shall not be allowed in Vienna. Pompey responds, Does your worship mean to geld and splay all the youth of the city? In other words, does your worship mean to castrate all the youth of the city? No, Pompey. Truly, sir, in my poor opinion, they will to it then. If your worship take order for the drabs and the knaves, you need not fear for the bods. How are you going to stop young people going at it? You're going to have to castrate them. And this is a cynical pimp talking. But he's offering a view of human nature that the play directly examines, and that is that human beings are by their nature corrupt. They have a streak, or perhaps more than a streak, of evil in them, and a, therefore a constant tendency to do the bad thing. And this comes out most in the compulsion of sex, the only way you're going to stop this is to castrate them all. The law can say what it wants. 
but they're going to go out and do it. That's a view of human nature. And it's a view held by people a good deal more eminent than Pompey. Pompey's view is, well, you know, they're just lustful. That's what young people are. They're just going to do it. So the law might as well just give up. Angelo holds the same opinion of human nature and human sexuality as Pompey, that yes, human nature is evil, and especially in terms of sex. That's why we need to have harsh and biting laws, as he has previously said, to keep them in control. This is a conservative view of human nature and a conservative view of the function of the law. The law exists because if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. You have to have harsh, strict laws for people. You can't coddle them because they'll take advantage of them because they are naturally bad. This play takes that, no good just dismissing that as cynical. The play takes that as a serious proposition that has to be examined in the play. And we might want even to hark as far back, given the fact that religion and religious imagery is pervasive throughout this play, even though we've hardly begun to examine it yet, but it will be there soon. And the fall of humanity is sometimes referred to as the seduction of Eve. The fall of the human race came through a woman who listened, who was weak-willed. Lust was not overtly in the picture, but as I say, it is always referred to as the seduction of Eve by the serpent. And women have been blamed not only for the human weak disposition to sin, but especially sexual sin ever since. A heavily documented and yet very readable book on this is Elaine Pagels, the religious historian, Adam, Eve, and the Serpent. Women get the blame. And women often get the blame in Shakespeare from some of the characters, most definitely starting with Hamlet. So we have this sexual obsession, and Pompey's attitude is the cynical one of the lower class character who says, there's nothing you can do about it. You can pass all the laws you want, and you can put some poor schmuck like Claudio to death, but they're going to still be out there doing it. Aeschylus lets him off with a warning, because right now, it's not yet time to crack down. There is not yet quite the evidence to do anything to Pompey, but he warns him, I'm on to you, and we'll be waiting and watching. You might want to think about reforming your ways, which he will not do in the slightest. Well, we follow in Act Two, Scene Two. We switch to Isabella, the sister of Claudio, whom we met in Act One on the verge of becoming a nun. She's actually in the convent, but has not yet taken final vows and therefore is able to leave 
and come and plead for her brother's life. And she comes in scene two in her initial meeting with Angelo to do exactly that. Angelo is in his official place speaking to the provost. The provost is a man who basically runs the prison system. We will be learning more about him. He's a minor character and yet a very important one. And in the end becomes, however briefly, a vivid character. Here, the provost is asking what is to be done with Julieta. She's going into labor or is on the verge of it. Uh, and Angelo, with characteristic empathy, says, see you the fornicatress be removed. This is a nice young girl who had sex with her boyfriend and happened to get pregnant, and she's in labor, and she's dismissed as basically a slut. Let her have needful but not lavish means. Take care of her, but don't spend too much money. In comes Isabella to plead for her brother. The problem is that, at least at first, Isabella pleads with complete lack of enthusiasm, almost with coldness. She begins by saying, haltingly, there is a vice that I do most abhor and most desire should meet the blow of justice for which I, I would not plead but that I must and for which I must not plead but that I am at war twixt will and will not. Angelo says, what are you talking about? What? He's, well, he says the matter. I abhor this, this vice meaning his, her brother's sexual act. I desire it should meet the blow of justice. I shouldn't plead for it, and yet I must. She is acting very coldly and indifferently because, again, we have to read the subtext. She's really conflicted about this. She, too, is disgusted by what Claudio, her brother, has done. And she is on the verge of being a nun, and she is saying to Angelo, I should not be pleading for mercy for a sin like this. I should be accepting the justice of this. But he's my brother. I have a brother is condemned to die, when Angelo asks her to clarify. And she begs in a halting manner for his life. And watching are the provost and Lucio, the comic character who has gone and fetched Isabella here, who says to her, you are too cold. If you should need a pin, you could not with more tame a tongue desire it. There are more passion and somebody asking for a pin than you're putting into pleading for your brother's life. And he keeps saying down further on the page, you are too cold. And finally, she warms up. It takes her most of a long scene to finally do it. 
And the way she goes about it, finally, what warms her up is an attack on Angelo's self-righteous haughtiness. If he had been as you and you as he, you would have slipped like him. And finally starts giving him back a bit of what he deserves. And goes on that way. Well, you do waste your words, he says. Why, all the souls that were were forfeit once. And here comes the religious text of the play. Everyone was condemned for sin once. The entire human race due to the fall. And he, with a capital H, that might the vantage best have took, found out the remedy. Instead of simply condemning the human race, he, God, Christ, instead found out the remedy for it. Otherwise, we'd all be worthy of death and hell. And finally, in a long scene, she begins becoming eloquent and clearly having such sense. And in fact, we get an aside from Angelo. Around line 147, she speaks, and tis such sense that my sense breeds with it. And he says, I will bethink thee, come again tomorrow. And she leaves, and the scene ends with a soliloquy, an amazing twisted soliloquy by Angelo. Come again tomorrow, not so that Angelo can consider the legal merits of the case, but because Angelo, as we find in this soliloquy, has been utterly struck and possessed by desire for a woman who is there in a nun's habit. And for the first time in his life, Angelo is tempted and tempted by the most inappropriate of all possible female objects of lust. And he asks himself, twistedly, tormentedly, what dost thou, what art thou, Angelo? Dost thou desire her foully for those things that make her good? We will end on this horrifying moment. What he is saying is, first of all, why do you, of all people, desire her? Is it just because she's an inaccessible object of desire, the utterly period nun? I think we have to say it's even uglier than that. It's the impulse to defile purity because it's purity. Twisted evil of human nature. And we will take up from that dark point next time.